welcome to the Show Up Podcast, a place where we explore leadership and how it's showing up for us in the world in which we work, and a space for you to explore what leadership means in your context, how you show up, how you turn up to be the best leader you can be in the world that you work in today. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Show Up Podcast um, that starts very quickly with a, a, a kind of someone said, well, we've had about a 20-minute conversation about this subject before we've even started. So we'll probably replicate some of it there. But what I picked up from that is why the subject of mental health is important to us in the workplace. And where we're kind of going to go today is maybe start to explore some of the barriers that get in the way from people successfully balancing their mental health in the workplace. That's kind of the intent. That's what we set out to try and do. But it's probably best that we, I throw to our learned data expert, Jamie Garner, um, <laughs> for some, well, just some stats, really, that kind of set the scene a little bit. Thank you, Graham. It's lovely to see you. Data for us, Jamie. Make sense of some data. Make sense of some data. No no pressure. Um, What I'll do is I'll read out some stats, and then I think we can make some sense of data. It's much better when you make sense with friends. Look at that, globalising the problem. Well done, my friend. Beautiful. Expert modelling. Absolutely. Collaboration is all it's about. So some recent stats, and I was fascinated by this. Uh, There's a series of stories for anybody reads the UK Times newspaper, but it's in a lot of other publications as well, um, that are a rather alarming increase in, particularly in young professionals or people just entering the workforce, that uh, a recent survey by an outfit called Unmind um, found that 56% of 16 to 24-year-olds said that they needed time off because of stress, anxiety, and depression. And in the professional workforce between ages 45 and 54, the number then drops to 33% and only 12% amongst over 55s. Now, that shows me there's quite a stark difference, even if you take into account this wasn't a massive sample size. So I did a bit more digging into the rest of the um, uh, statistics that I could find. And the ONS, uh, Office of National Statistics in the UK, have been doing some work on this and the times that's journalists have been picking up on it and if that is today's relative proportions of a research sample of very young professionals or workers feeling that more than half of them feel they need time to take off back in 2019 gps were starting to see that um, there was something like a i'm just going to find the, the numbers now so that i can speak with some degree of authority based on facts there was a doubling of the number of under 34s 25 to 34 doubling of the rate per thousand patients uh, that they were seeing this is pre-pandemic mind you over the last five to ten years so that's over 40 per thousand compared to 20 per thousand in a five-year period with the under 25s being the fastest growing And then you then compare it to the fact that at the moment, um, there are more than something like 3 million people who are economically inactive, a quarter of whom are off because, and this is long-term, because of anxiety, depression, nerves, phobias, or panics. All of these are publicly available statistics. And this is at a time when you and I and everybody listening to this has probably got more access to information, guidance, support, and advice about how to manage, self-regulate, deal with um, workplace pressures, stress, um, physical, mental uh, welfare than at any time in history because it's better researched, it's more available. So what's getting in the way, guys? What's happening? fascinating and sobering data points the the one that stuck out for me was the the move from 20 in a thousand to 40 in a thousand to two percent to four percent of under 34s 
four percent of people. And and on an upwards curve, if anybody can see the video version of our of our podcast, it is over forty five degrees or higher in terms of the steepness of climb before the pandemic, and that's before very traumatic seismic shifts in society have been experienced and what we have also discussed the unsettling and sort of rather complex and unknown impacts of virtual and hybrid working which is now much more the norm than has ever been the case this is not likely to be going the the other way and that's in the backdrop of a better than ever in history levels of health and wealth in nearly every country in the world yeah particularly mm. in the uk life life expectancy is starting to drop in north america in particular um but in most other countries it's continuing to increase so you've got a backdrop of life is theoretically better and easier than it's ever been on a and longer longer in a lot of places there's an aging world population yeah mm. and you've got as you say, access to information in more abundance than has ever been available and more people talking about how to look after yourself and saying that it's their priority to look after yourself and manage your mental health than ever before by an exponential factor. And yet more and more people are struggling. Yeah. Which might mean they struggle from younger for longer. Yeah. If you roll forward the natural conclusions of this if i'm suffering as i enter the workforce to the point where roughly half of the population surveyed it was low numbers of thousands in that first bit of research but if that is indicative of if big if that's indicative of the entry point workforce and that they might have a working life which goes well into their 60s by the time they get there maybe even the 70s given the the likelihood of physical health allowing them to work longer and the fact that nobody can afford the pensions for anybody retiring in the 50s or 60s now, we've got a possibility that at least a quarter, maybe more than that, end up going off on long-term sickness dependency as a result of that mental health stuff in a world where there's so much access to information about how to manage that. That's a rather extraordinary set of rather conflicting dynamics. There's something in this which doesn't quite make sense as we try and make sense of it. Graham, you're the behavioural change guy. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I'm saying so quiet because my brain's running through a million different possible things. Like the big questions that are coming up for me at first are things like, well, what is it that we have culturally paid attention to that has led to both positive and negative consequences from those intended actions. That's the first thing that comes up for me because, as you know, anytime someone makes an intervention with someone, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a mentor, whether it's a boss, a leader, uh, a loved one, in those circumstances, there are two ways that people tend to respond to what's given when they don't know. They either lean towards it or they move away from it pretty quickly. And that's in simple language, right? So I wonder what's gone on that's led to people moving the negative side of it being experienced more, as well as potentially the positive, right? Let's, let's not, you know, if there's 40 in 1,000, that means there's 960 who aren't reporting it. So let's not overlook that. But you're right, the data is showing that this is more prevalent. So that's the first question that comes up. The second one that then comes up is, why? What outside of people is driving us to respond like this? You know, I've had mental health challenges myself. Um, I'm sure we can all remember times when we each have had them too. And in some way, we've been able to move forwards somehow. Is it because we access the resources and use them? Is it because just someone gave us a chance when we didn't think we had it? I don't know. Lots of questions going through my head, chaps. What questions are going through yours? That's interesting. You should refer to the, you know, I love the, well, it's not necessarily all bleak. What can we learn from the fact that there are 960 in a thousand who haven't yet reported it or don't need to report it because they don't feel it? 
um, some of my work in the past with specific focus on workforce analytics has always revealed that there's a buffer zone of those who actually probably would report it if they got round to it or just have a stiff upper lip attitude to I'm not physically falling over yet, so I won't go to the GP. Um, so I think the 40 in a thousand is probably likely to be higher, but it's not going to be multiples of that, I suspect. But there is therefore a, a very significant pro proportion of the population that we could look at and learn from what's going on for them that's different. So that's the positives. I like that. I like the fact that you've then introduced the what is going on outside. What's, what are the environmental influences or the context influences that could be uh, creating conditions that explain some of the why? And then you've touched on what's going on inside these people. What, how much they know about themselves that helps them in those moments where it's getting really tough that allow them to either start to cope with, deal with, find a way through, or actually inspire them to seek help. There's that, I think there's that layer as well. And some of the, the basic thinking and some of the inspiration behind a lot of the adult development or vertical development uh, we've touched on um, uh, in the past, the theories that underpin the practices we're now starting to uh, use in with clients. That came from studies of people who were experiencing traumatic dramatic and traumatic physical uh, challenges who then found it within themselves to change or didn't and the explorations around that so i think those three factors are really interesting quite what the externals could be boiled down to right now there's a list as long as my arm of things that have been happening over the last decade or more that i think could or should be added to the list it's been um, increasing the pace of change in society and life with the introduction of internet, social media, and now with AI. So there's just more stuff around that means that people just don't have time to pro process or digest, and therefore it just feels a little bit overwhelming generally. There's been quite seismic change in society with um, the real appearance of climate change crises, whether people fully believe in what's causing it or not, it's certainly more frequent. So there is climate change anxiety starting to creep up on people. There is geopolitical uncertainty. There's been the blooming pandemic. There's now a vastly different working environment. Da, 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 da. The list goes on. I mean, it's just, it is extraordinary. Gary? Yeah, for me, I'm, I, I'm, I agree with a lot of that, although I suspect we could have an interesting debate about climate change at some point. That would be a distraction. <laughs> um, <laughs> I certainly agree with climate change anxiety as a massive problem for young people, huge problem for young people. I've seen surveys that rate like, extraordinary stats of like 50% of people believe Earth would be better off without humanity, which is essentially a, a fundamentally anti-human stance, but it's what people have been led to believe by what they've been told. Um, anyway, my what I'm sitting here thinking is... There's a really interesting thing for me of this this 40 in a thousand people versus 20 not many years ago, and it probably more than that now. And Jamie, as you say, probably more people who aren't openly acknowledging that or or seeking help. There's a question for me of how why have they got to that point? Like all of the things that have driven them to that point where they basically are saying, I can't cope with life in the way that it's set up for me. But then also, why are they not getting themselves out of it? And that's where this uh, surfeit of information and things comes into me of like actually the the fundamental difficulty of trying to do things differently, even though you know what you're supposed to be doing. And I think ev everybody listening to this can probably think about a time in the very recent past where they tried to do something differently. They tried to introduce a new habit or break an old habit and found that incredibly difficult. And it's not because they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. The obesity crisis in the Western world is not because there's a lack of information about what healthy eating consists of. It's because if you have food addiction, which is very personal to me because it's one of the things that I battle with, if you have food addiction, it's incredibly difficult to break that and make better choices on a consistent basis. If you're trying to look after yourself in a work environment, it's incredibly difficult to put the habits in place to do that. So there's a, 
there's clearly a bunch of things that are driving people to that place of saying, I need some help. There's a bunch of things that I think are making it easier for people to say, I need some help for better or worse. And you could say, well, it's great that all these people are seeking help. And before they would have just ended up um, bottling things up and in some mess later in life. Or you could say, as some people do that, people need to just toughen up and deal with things and in my day everyone just got on with it and didn't complain so much and that level of stoicism which verges on denial at times so there's why are people stuck in there and then there's like well actually everybody objectively knows what they're supposed to do they can look up the data on how to look after themselves and the habits that inform that quite easily but it's really really difficult to actually instill those behavior changes it's a complicated thing to it, solve. it is it is you might you mentioned something there derry that has just brought back a little insight and put it on screen and we'll talk through it but i'd be interested to see your chat reactions because it's a little model that proposes how beliefs are installed and for me there's an element of i people believing they're having a mental health challenge or believing that they're experiencing something. And I'll go on to a perspective you could take on this in a second. But here's a little model about how beliefs are installed. And what it proposes is that the first thing someone has to have is rapport with the person giving them the belief or the the body entity, whatever it is that they listen to that that gives them that belief. The next thing is that they have to trust the person's authority. So has that person got authority to give that information and insight? And then the final part is that the person listening or having that belief installed has to suspend their critical analysis. And there's a statement that comes with this, that once the unconscious has accepted something as a fact, whether it is true or not, it will work upon it with equal efficiency. Hmm. So a bit of confirmation bias type stuff coming in there. But when I look at it in the context of a developing brain, there are so many unknowns for people at the age of 18, age 25, right? But how many times have we seen that youngster who thinks they know everything at that age? And then the part of the brain where our emotional reaction is doesn't have words to it. So you have to find the words to describe the emotion you're feeling. So if they're feeling stress from not knowing what to do in a situation and someone says, well, you're experiencing a mental health challenge, they'll borrow the phrase mental health and then make sense of it in their language. If that person's had a mental health challenge, you know, we see these celebrities come on that they disappear for four years and suddenly then write a book and they talk about where their journey's been, which is great and honest and wonderful. But if they trust that person to share that story, that's the authority piece because they already buy into them because they listen to them because they like what they've done. There's the authority. And if they don't have that ability to then go and critically analyze what they've heard, is it actually a mental health crisis? the person will believe they're having a mental health crisis. Now, I'm not saying people aren't having mental health crises. I'm saying that flow in the lack of knowledge that someone might have is who is younger is very easy to then adopt to describe the circumstances they feel in. And I wonder if earlier generations never had had more critical analysis skills or more invitation to challenge or think about what they're hearing and, and question it. So beliefs were less tightly held onto if they were installed with them. I or, share that or, with you, Chad. Maybe the, maybe the messages they were getting were just different. I'm really struck by the rapport and authority, the first two blocks on that that you had, because... That says to me, and you know, brains develop up until about the age of twenty-five. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people talk about children, but actually, young adults mm -hmm. are highly susceptible to this, these kinds of influences. And there are a number of different people that you trust who have the rapport with you and have authority, whether that's 
your parents or carers as you're growing up, your teachers, early colleagues, early bosses, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are getting the messages or, or rather, I think if you're, you're the critical analysis step is dependent on the framework that you've been given w- through which to analyze the world. Mm. So if that framework, for example, includes the planet is going to explode in 50 years because we're we're en- entering the boiling phase of climate change, as the UN would tell us, then if that's what the messaging that you've been fed right through your your youth, you don't have the ability to critically analyze beyond that because it's like being raised in a in a heavily religious family where you're told this is this is the framework through which you will analyze the world or an atheist family it doesn't really matter what the messages were you're given a framework that provides the basis for your critical analysis and we all use those frameworks all the time to simplify the world and make sense of it and maybe the it's not that previous generations had better skills for critical analysis Maybe it's just that the message they were given was you work hard, you don't complain, you get on with it, and that's the way that you live a good life. I always I always find like with the development of products, the new iPhone launched yesterday. The response to it has been generally been quite mooted. And I posed the question to some friends, I said, Well, what more do we need in the phone? We've got enough megapixels, we've got enough speed, we've got enough memory, we've got all the functionality. Why are we pre-programmed to expect bigger, better, faster, stronger every single time something new comes? What pressure does that feed into people's system? Because you're establishing a belief that everything needs to be bigger, better, faster, stronger for you to want it. And I wonder what, for me, that... I feel like that's a strong contributor to people's inability to be able to cope with stagnation or deflation or it not being ideal, it taking longer. And I think that's an unintended consequence of, you know, the developing business model in this world. So is this as simple as like the the information overload which we've referenced a few times and the nature with which that is presented to people is driving unrealistic expectations and the you know there's many uh much blame been laid at the door of social media for unrealistic expectations and just maybe part of this is just when the rubber hits the road in the reality of life and life is generally tough if you're not expecting that and you're you've been raised with a critical analysis framework, which says, well, if I find life tough, I've got a mental health problem. That's the, that's what you naturally conclude. That's, that's certainly one system that could exist. It was like, we, we joked about it earlier, didn't we? The pressure of boards for businesses to do better. And what's the cascade of behavior that comes down from that board tells, you know, chairman, you know, executive committee do better. We're not hitting the things that we've decided we want because we've come off of a lifetime of growth. The chairman, in a moment of anxiety, let's say, about salary, you know, salary security and all those things, is like, well, I've got to do it because otherwise I'm going to lose my job and I don't want to lose my job. So that's immediately tension inside the leader, which we know from previous conversations cascades to leadership across a whole organization. So suddenly you've set a whole organizational behavior of we're not good enough, we need to get better, no matter what the market tells us. And then you're at the bottom of the food chain as someone who's a first-time leader or being responsible for certain elements. And all you can feel is that weight of pressure from the whole business because a board said, make it better. Well, and well, one slight build and a nuance on it because it doesn't really even start with the board. It might visibly start with the board. It starts from where the capital comes from that has been lent to the business to be what it is. And that's where are the shareholders' motivations for this? And that's are they public shareholders? Are they private equity shareholders? Is this family run? Is it a generational thing? Because that then is what the board is looking at, balancing the interests of shareholder return, whatever type of shareholder it is, and the ability to execute in an ethical, sustainable way. And make sure that they've got the right leaders to do it 
the board the board doesn't necessarily say we've got to grow up 20 percent a year the shareholders will be saying to them we're going to take our share holding out leaving you exposed if you don't give me a 12 14 18 percent return on equity so they go okay fine is that realistic okay well we know that that's what we're hearing from all our shareholders that's the sort of entry level we've now got to make sure the executive team a team produce plans to show us how they're going to achieve it sometimes the board itself and i'm thinking of uh an example of bt in the uk british telecom um when philip jansen took on the role of chief executive having left world pay i think it's maybe four or five years ago now kind of classic five-year cycle of a ceo maybe a little bit longer um after a year or so he set out his stall that he was going to write not a three-year or five-year strategy he was going to do a 2030 strategy and he actually made a point to the board we are going to let shareholders go who are not interested in investing in us for a shorter time horizon than the strategy is laid out. We've got to have those tough conversations because this is not a three-year cycle business. This is a infrastructure play. This is a long-term transformation and it's a long-term part of society. So I think that if we go one step beyond that, it's the, where's the capital coming from? What's the influence of the capital on the board's responsibility to make sure that there are good plans in place? But then everything else you've described thereafter, I totally agree with. It flows all downhill. It flows all downhill. And I think if we kind of bring this and ground it into the topic that we normally talk about, as that flows downhill, pressure returns. And now this awareness of what's going on in our society, our environment, and indeed in a leader's team as a microcosm of that, what does an emerging leader, a youngish leader, therefore need to be capable of, need to start appreciating to help them manage and balance this? Because guess what? They're also a part of that population that's feeling the pressure and probably could be on that in that environment, somebody who's already feeling that sense of, oh my God, can I cope? So what do we, what do we think they need to be starting to be able to do? I see smiles. <laughs> a thought that's come across my head. It's and it balances practical with emotional. I think you can roughly break up our day into three parts. Right, it's twenty four hours long. There's eight hours sleeping, eight hours working, eight hours humanizing i wonder how often the the weight of emotion that's held in those three parts gets out of balance so the eight hours at work feels like 16 hours work because it bleeds into the eight hours of humanizing and the sleep is poor so you don't get enough sleep so i wonder whether sort of trying to rebalance around that might be helpful for people where they can start to say, okay, work stays at work. It's not all of life, it's part of life. And start to appreciate the self a little bit more in those eight hours of humanizing and the eight hours of sleeping, which are all regenerative practices. I wonder if that's a starting point. And I think, Greg, hearing you say that, there's sort of a level above that for me, which is at the foundation, what you're saying is they need to look after themselves so that they can support their team, hmm. first and foremost, hmm. if they're feeling that hmm. that weight of pressure. I like, I like that Jamie has essentially laid the blame for the mental health crisis at the feet of Larry Fink and BlackRock and Vanguard, et cetera. Um, probably, probably not far wrong to be fair. Um, and as he's listening, Larry, we're coming after you next episode. You're welcome to come on as a guest, Larry, and we can discuss this. Yeah. (laughs) What are you going to do to solve this thing? Um, but yeah, so I think fundamentally, like there's a, like they have look after themselves, but then that, you know, brings us back to what we were talking about earlier that actually that looking after yourself isn't necessarily straightforward Hmm. and 
even though you know what you're supposed to be doing, when you're feeling that weight of pressure in your work environment, it's pretty hard to do that. And I can totally understand why some people say, like in the in that that flood of pressure coming down the business to them as a young leader, they they say, do you know what? I can't. I'm not handling this. I can't handle it. Mm. And they realize there's an option. Not necessarily that they're consciously taking that option, but there's an option of saying I can't handle it and getting some relief from it. Yeah. And, well, and not in their best interest, because it's not in anybody's best interest to be signed off long-term sick. That, as a human being, that is a, not a bad place to end up. Like, I think, yeah, I'd a, agree a with hard that. hole to dig yourself out of. Like One of the patterns, I don't know if you chaps have ever seen it, it's very prominent today, where if people don't like what they say they don't like something, they'll tell you they don't like it. Well, what I noticed that comes with that is two possible responses. They genuinely don't like it. Fair cop. You know, their experience tells that's not the way I like to deal with it. It's not where it comes from. But I see more times than not people saying they don't like it as a defense mechanism for actually saying, I don't understand it. So I'm not going to go and put the effort in or the pain or the hard yards to go and make sense of it. Like used to happen. It's very quick to dismiss. You know, keyboard warriors can quickly say, I don't like you on social media, rather than going and saying, well, actually, what I don't like is this in me, and you're bottling that. So so as people start to recognize the challenge, I wonder how much discernment people make between they're actually saying they're putting their own defense mechanism up as a protection net for themselves, rather than owning the responsibility for what what part they've brought to the party and what they've the contribution they've made that's got them to where they are today did that make any sense i i think are you are you talking essentially in uh sort of 15 commitments language of taking radical responsibility yes that's what i'm talking about Derry. thank getting you above the line taking responsibility for the part they've played in getting to that situation yes. actually Therefore, the, the conscious mindset is to take responsibility for getting out of that situation in some way. Yeah. Um, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Thank you for remembering radical responsibility because that is exactly the term. Because people say they take responsibility, but it's never radical. And they, um, they will dismiss it to protect themselves rather than dismissing because they just don't agree with it. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I was thinking of that chapter, funnily enough, as, and uh, as you said that, Terry. And I was thinking there's an element of this, which is also understanding the, a little bit about boundaries. So radical responsibility to understand where you're at, what your frame is. We talked about frames, what your context is, and then be aware that there might be a frame and a context in the people that you're leading in the context of this feeling of stress, overwhelm and pressure. And then the radical responsibility to make sure that you are comfortable that you don't need to either have all the answers, know what the right thing to do for somebody else might actually be, or save everybody. But you've got to make sure you know how to put your own oxygen mask on so that you can do your best as a leader to help to translate the world for your team. And that translation of the world for their team is to help them become more conscious about where they're at, where their context is, where their frame is, what their state of physical health is. And if we can, help them distill and translate advice that might be available in their company, that's available that you're aware of in research or self-help stuff outside, um, make space for these kinds of things to be discussed without fear of judgment know that it's possibly happening, even if you don't necessarily see all the evidence for it, as well as as a leader, when you feel that you're struggling to translate, seek help in the translation so that you can be part of that helpful systemic process. That's mm. the kind of radical responsibility expanded in my mind, because there's a bit that you can control as a leader in all of that. And that's what you do as part of that system and how you show up. But you can't save everybody else. And you've got to know where your limitations are. Say as well, if we look at that model of how beliefs are installed, it's really critical to the leader 
is aware that as they're supporting someone in this space, they are taking steps passively, actively to make sure the critical analysis of where the leader's intent comes from is clear. Because if an individual says, well, you're only doing it because you want me to get back to work to make, you know, to make us some more money and you hit your objectives, that's that critical analysis trigger set up and the beliefs won't shift. They won't be able to say, okay, I've got a problem and I need to fix it because they then they're more working to defend their stance that they don't like what the leader said to them. Mm-hmm. So at least at least three different simple models flying around my head, which I think are all relevant to the stuff you guys are Roll talking about. Roll them out, about. D. Roll them out. One is, um, Jamie, when you talk about boundaries, I think that's so important. I, I, I don't really run it anymore, but I had a course uh, on resilience for consultants and a good 20 to 30% of that course was focused around setting boundaries, personal boundaries and expressing needs and wants in a clean way. And I think it's so important for resilience to be able to hold those boundaries. So if you're a young leader in an organization where there's pressure piling down on you and that's impacting your work-life balance, your mental health, your, your essentially your productivity, and there are things there that are negatively impacting you that you can change, then you have a responsibility in radical responsibility terms to identify what those are and hold that boundary and communicate that boundary really clearly and make sure that, that boundary is understood. And people may still try and transgress the boundary. And then so the, the model I'm thinking of there that I go to through my men's work is the, the male archetypes and the archetype of the warrior. And the concept of the warrior is that you you take action and you get stuff done and you defend what is worth defending. And that can be a difficult stance to take for some people when they haven't been used to holding a boundary like that. So there's, and then Jamie hearing you're t- you talking about that. I, I was thinking there's your personal boundaries as a young leader, but you've also got to take responsibility for the boundaries around the team. And that's a balance to strike so that you're not rescuing them. Hmm. So you've got that model around boundaries and the, and the warrior archetype, which I, I really love. Um, I'm starting to kind of look into that that side of things a lot more at the moment and writing about it on my personal blog. And I think it's fascinating stuff. You've then got this concept of rescuer, which takes me to the drama triangle, which I suspect we've mentioned before on the podcast, but for if those we who haven't, we've, I, I'm surprised if we haven't, I'd be, I'd be blown away. Uh, I'm sure we have at some point, but for those of you not familiar with it, essentially the drama triangle says that there are three behavior patterns that people fall into in any dysfunctional interaction one is the victim, one is the perpetrator, and one is the rescuer or the hero. And if you're a young leader sitting there and you can see that somebody is struggling, you need to think very carefully about the extent to which you step in and rescue them, do their work for them, cover for them, etc. to think really carefully about whether you're getting sucked into a drama triangle type relationship where there's some boss or the company itself or the external environment that is being pushed into the perpetrator that that person is blaming for all of their woes and that they're slipping into victim mindset be very clear and conscious about that side of things so and i had a third model that i now can't remember that i'm sure will come back to me (laughs) yeah it's interesting because i've never heard anyone talk about this thing like this as we just sort of play it. You see people offering models all the time. You can go on Instagram right now and get a motivational quote that is designed to change your world when you read it. And I suspect about five minutes later, you've forgotten about it <laughs> when you do read it. Because you either get on with stuff or because it's such fast delivery through social media, it doesn't have a chance to imprint and your brain to process what that means in your context. Well, you don't think like, well, what am I going to do differently? You go like, oh, that's a really cool quote. (laughs) And you don't go, in order to apply that in my life, I'm going to do the following things and write down a smart action. And and, and if you did do that, as opposed to just go, well, it didn't land, then a bit like the great philosopher Mike Tyson said, no plan survives the first punch in the face. If the plan of how I'm going to apply this then meets the reality of the stress and the pressure of the workplace, and you don't have the resilience to go, 
oh god now do i still try and find a way of dealing with this um then you can yeah, sometimes how do, I, find... how do i step forward again let's let's just put a few in front of you chaps i've just done a search on instagram for motivational quotes let's discuss oh, this, the reaction a, you have when you quiz? hear each one <laughs> of these okay this week's pop quiz when i was losing i was still smiling because i knew i was going to get it all back i was going to get it all back now I, I find that a very interesting phrasing because you're not necessarily going to get whatever you've lost back but I, I was I think, expecting that, that rich- to end with like something around learning. And see, there's Derry's uh, excellent example of critical analysis surfacing. Is there. this Wonderful. Richard Branson? Is that Richard Branson? It's it's set on a picture of uh, I want to say Al Pacino's character from Scarface. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the parallels are there. Richard Branson, Al Pacino, Scarface. Here we go. Here's another one. This has got no picture in the background, this. So it's just words. Life hack. Only put your energy into things you have a future with. Well, that's profound. Well, where does your brain go if you're going to take that on? Well, Joe, my, my brain actually went like quite practical on that. Like, okay, in this context... Would I, if I'm feeling like I need to, I can't cope with the the work I'm doing in the company that I'm working with, if you take that quote in mind, you'd say, well, do I have a future here? Are my learning skills that will help my future and future self in some way? And if not, go off and do something else. Which actually, for a lot of people who aren't finding they're coping very well with the work environment, they've voluntarily place themselves into which is a thing that many people forget is to at least some degree you have chosen to do what you're doing you can stop it and go and do something else you can you can if if you have strong critical analysis um like you've just displayed because you process started to think ah oh, practical but i went wow that's profound because i thought if i was a feeling of emerging overwhelm and somebody says yeah don't bother because if you don't have a future in it then what's the point i'd be thinking i don't see a future in anything right now what's the point it could actually tip me into a deeper and faster spiral which is the totally the opposite intent of the Mm. the motivational statement yeah because not none of none of these have a mechanism by which you can contact the person who's written them or put posted them to help you if you end up in a place from reading. No, no ability to get assistance with the translation. No, none whatsoever. Yeah, um, it made me think of the, the recent trend around uh, quiet quitting as well, which is, I think, related to what we're talking about, where people basically just slowly stop working. Yeah. And they don't they don't quit. They don't want to come off payroll, but they just slowly stop working until such point as they get found out. And often they're working on side hustles, et cetera, on the side. But for a sub, I, I I would bet that a subset of the people who are off on long-term sick are actually quite quitting and doing other stuff and keeping that was the one of the, if we yeah. If we roll the clock back nearly an hour, um, one of the subtexts in part of the research was that there was a, a suspicion that quite a significant number of those who've gone long-term sick with anxiety, phobias, and the rest weren't actually not working. They were doing they something weren't else. Weren't not working. Yeah, they were They were just working on something else or for yeah. someone else. And I've got a final one for you chaps, because thank you for having the rapport that we have and the authority to trust me to be able to navigate to Instagram quick enough. There's a bit of something there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, you demonstrated it all because you all actually critically analyzed. So you got to the third stage. Um, in the context of what we're talking about, your silence will protect you. Mm-hmm. Your silence will protect you. Keep your head down. <laughs> I'm minded of a quote I read yesterday, actually, which was. Uh... The only alternative to being bright is silence. Or what's that other what's that other famous quote? Better better to have people think you're a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> <laughs> but here's 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 the thing. 
I'm then looking down the list of comments on that one. And we've got a heart, we've got three heart emojis from three different people. We've got someone saying silence definitely protects. Most needed stuff all together. Exactly right. All lines are true because there's a few other pictures on the back end of this as well. Beautifully written. And then the first one where someone's actually contextualized the statement is the 10th one on the list. Silence is indeed underrated at times. A little bit of analysis. A little bit of analysis, right? Caveat. And what I'm just seeing there is I'm seeing this because that's the trend that people have on social media. They see the post and then they go and read the comments. So if they read comments that are compounding the agreement with the statement that's made on there and they've not got the ability to critically analyze, they're going to compound in their own heads this belief that silence will protect you. Mm-hmm. I can that's tell you on my own personal case, silence was exactly the thing that damaged me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's Very hard so- to lead a productive life in total silence, I'd suspect. I mean, maybe yeah. there are monks out there who would question that, but a little bit of social media there, chaps. Yeah, Just social media see- comments. Social media comments is an illustration of socialized mind in action. Well, and uh, Graham, you make me think as well. Your the model that you shared of rapport, authority, critical analysis. No critical analysis. That's how belief installs. Or, yeah. or no critical analysis. Yeah. The there is also a, a tech-enabled trend towards people just existing in bubbles of, mm. um, I guess, yeah, bub- what do they call it? Group, group think bubbles, yeah. where uh, you only ever engage with people who think the same as you. Yeah. Um, or you actively that- go to so many that disagree with you that you lose self, you track yourself, because you've made it your sole intent never to be caught in the same group. That's the other extreme I've seen as well. Yeah, and then you end up just having like digital battles left, right, and centre, which yeah. is, uh, like, I guess some people enjoy. It's horrific for me, but um, the my point was that if you're if you're in those echo chambers, then you have rapport with the people that are publishing these things because they're saying things that you agree with. You respect their authority because you say, well, they're talking sense, so they are building trust through their credibility, etc. And you sus- if you don't have those critical analysis skills, which you've almost consciously suspended because you're trying to seek out opinions that already agree with you, then it just reinforces and you end up in this re- reinforcing cycle. And then it's really hard to break out of. And mm-hmm. we talked at the start about people getting into this situation where they're willing to say, for, for good reasons or not, I have... A- a mental health challenge which is bad enough that I can't cope with my working environment and I need some time off. And it's really difficult to get out of that environment. And I think we're we're running out of time a little bit today. We haven't really talked about the second half of that. So I think maybe we need to save that for another conversation at, at a future point in time. But the um I'm really struck by this sense of all of the pressure that's coming down and the fact that really fundamentally people seem less willing to hold boundaries around themselves in a healthy way. And I wonder going back in time when you'd say, well, people were tougher and they just got on with it and they didn't complain. They were uh, very good at holding boundaries, but in a relatively unhealthy way. And the real art to this, I think, is to hold your boundaries consciously, take responsibility, but not to shut yourself away and shut yourself down and have that mm-hmm. have that self-awareness that enables you as a leader to say, this is acceptable to me on, and this is not acceptable to me and this is acceptable to my team and not acceptable to my team and hold those boundaries, but leaving yourself open enough that your team can connect with you and the others can connect with you. Yeah the, words, yeah, the words I'm putting to that is be more conscious about when you enforce and when you work with boundary. Yeah. Sometimes they're important, but also other times flexibility is needed to be shared without losing sight of what else that matters. 
I think we can all cite stories where we've heard people were compromising their boundaries to such a degree that's led to the whole mental health crisis being right. But for me, yeah. I think it's it's starting to know that there are times when you need to do it and there are times when you aren't. And can I just one slight build, which I think yeah. is a real distinction between uh, somebody taking on leadership responsibility, being given it for the first time, is that very important component there around boundaries. It will potentially be for those people the first time that they've got to think it's not just my boundary. I now yeah. need to think about it being more than just my boundary, although mine are still vital. And secondly, whereas in the past I might have been slightly better or okay with the boundaries being given to me when you are a leader because you are responsible for not just for yours but for others you cannot just have boundaries given to you it's that is a fun fundamental change in how you show up as a leader which is you're no longer just on the receiving end of what the boundary is you are creating it and then flexing it and being aware of it Wow, what a journey today, chaps. I've, I've got one other image that uh, that popped in my head. of the So I've always thought boundaries as like hard, like steely things, right? And actually, Graham, what you just said about that flexibility and things actually made me think, actually, maybe boundaries are a bit more like a sponge. And it's okay sometimes for people to push into it and squash your boundary a little bit. But if it happens too often and if they push too hard, they're going to break through the sponge and if you end up with a holy sponge you've got a problem so maybe that i don't know that just popped in my head as a random like there, there you go everybody the nature of the boundary make it a bit spongy but be very aware when the uh when people break through it is the boundary steely is it spongy is it permeable who knows a whole whole episode on the material characteristics <laughs> of a boundary Oh, that's coming soon to a podcast near you. You lucky listeners. <laughs> lucky listeners. <laughs> Boys, it's, as always, it's been very good to chat. Until the next time. Yeah, let's watch the space. Thank you, gents. Thank you, chaps. any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you Music